So, the excluded can be included. Um, it might help you, you don't have to turn there. Um, but uh, in terms of what we were looking at last time we were in Luke, we were in Luke chapter 4, um, we were uh, looking at Jesus' uh, summary of his ministry. Um, Jesus was talking about the nature of his ministry. He began his public ministry in a synagogue where he read from Isaiah and he said that he is the uh, spirit-anointed preacher of good news to the poor, to the destitute, to the oppressed, to those who are excluded from God's favour. And he had come as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, as God's chosen King to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, as he said there. And he made it absolutely clear in chapter 4 that his priority was teaching. Even in the, um, even in the healing ministry that he did, um, it was his words that had the authority. It was with words that he drove out evil spirits. It was with words that he drove out sickness. And when the crowds gathered, because he was healing so many people, we're told at the end of chapter 4 that the people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues and in the surrounding countryside of Judea. Jesus' ministry was one of words, as we saw last time. And then we get to our chapter, chapter 5. And so that's on the inside of your service sheets. I've um, put some fill-in-the-blanks to keep you awake to help you um, as we study this together. We're going to dive straight into chapter 5 and verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Luke sets the scene for us. And just that imagery of Jesus having to get into the boat just gives us an idea of the size of the crowds. He'd been doing this amazing healing ministry. People had hear, heard the authority of his words and they were coming to listen to him now. And he asked this man, Simon, to put out a little from the shore. And he stands in the boat and preaches to the great crowds on the seaside. And the pace of chapter 4 into chapter 5 had been quite fast. And then suddenly we slow down into these next four episodes. And right now we zoom in from the crowds to one man, Simon, also known as Peter. And we come to our first point that we'll see in this next bit. I need to realise I should be excluded before I can be included. That's the first point that you can fill in the blanks on your sheets. I need to realise that I should be excluded before I can be included. Well, let's continue from verse 4. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. 
but because you say so, I will let down the nets. It is extraordinary here, isn't it? A weird thing that Jesus would, a carpenter, a preacher, would come to a fisherman who knew what he was doing and would tell him how to fish. And yet we get to see something of the authority and the power of his words in Simon's response. And it was worth it, wasn't it? Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. An absolutely extraordinary miracle. Jesus is showing his power to command nature. We don't know whether he just uh, knew because of insight given him by the Spirit, because he was the Son of God exactly where the fish would be. More likely, it seems, he commanded them to come up because fish would have come to the surface at night when it was cool and then sunk deep during the day and that's why fishermen thought it was pointless to go out fishing during a hot day. But it's actually not the miracle that strikes Peter the most. It's something that the miracle points to. Verse 8, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. What, what's the connection between this miracle of this amazing catch of fish, the best catch of fish they'd ever had, something that would make them rich, and his sinfulness? I think what we get to see here is that behind the extraordinary power and authority that Jesus had over nature, Simon Peter sees his extraordinary moral purity. You see, he says that, I'm a sinful man. He doesn't say, not, he doesn't say, um, I've sinned recently. He's not talking about the fact that he knows that yesterday he swindled someone and overcharged them for their bag of fish. He's saying that at the very core of his being, who he is, is a sinful person. The word sinful means falling short. It's like um, a dart that if you throw it at the dartboard, not only does it not hit the target, but it lands on the floor way in front of the dartboard. And Peter knows that his performance before God, before Jesus, the Son of God, is a boy. He's a sinful man. He cannot live up to God's standards. In the presence of God, he realises he's contaminated. That may not be that Peter has fully realised who Jesus is now, but he knows that he's sent by God. He knows that he's holy. He can see that purity. And in Jesus' presence, he knows he's contaminated. He's like, he's like a germ before a bottle of bleach. Or he's like an Ebola sufferer in the presence of health workers. I thought this image might help you on the screen. I've put a genuine picture of someone uh, sealed off and being put into a sealed room so that he can be treated by medics who are all wearing uh, full uh, coverings because the Ebola sufferer is contaminated. And Peter's saying to Jesus, go away from me, I might contaminate you. And yet, 
Jesus' response is extraordinary. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I I didn't realise that you were a sinful person. I'd better go and find someone else. No, verse 10. There on your sheets, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for Peter. Uh, For for people, sorry. (laughs) Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, (coughs) and followed him. We get an amazing insight into the plan of Jesus. He doesn't say to Peter, no, 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 you're wrong. You're not sinful. No, he acknowledges that. But he says, don't be afraid. I'm going to use you. You will fish for people. The word for fish or for catch is, is to, to catch alive. It's a kind of rescue word. And yet before we can be useful to Jesus, before we can be used by him, we need to realise how sinful we are. And Peter shows us here, Simon Peter shows us here, that the, more, that the closer we get to Jesus, the more sinful we realise we are. But actually that's a good thing because the more we realise how much we need him rather than him needing us, the more he can use us. Well, we'll continue to see that theme. See, Peter discovered in the presence of Jesus that he was contaminated. He saw this picture of moral purity and just knew how far he fell short of God's standards. But now we get to meet a man who already knew full well that he was contaminated. And that brings us on to our second point. I need to realise I'm contaminated and to ask Jesus to make me clean. I need to realise I'm contaminated and ask Jesus to make me clean. I need to see that I'm like that Ebola sufferer. Well, this man has the first century equivalent of Ebola. Let's have a look. Verse 12. While Jesus was... In one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. That's an infectious skin disease. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The word he uses there is a very, very striking word, the word clean. He doesn't say, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. Even though that's exactly what he wants. He's got this horribly infectious skin disease that covers his body. He says, you can make me clean. It's a very powerful word there. And because this was a Jewish man in Israel, for those who knew their Old Testaments well, it would give them an image, it would help them to uh, to be reminded of the Old Testament, of the book of Leviticus, where a skin disease like leprosy was connected to sin. In Leviticus chapter 13, verses 43 to 46, if you're taking notes, let me read to you what it says. You don't need to turn there. Leviticus chapter 13, it says, If someone has an infectious skin disease, the priest is to examine him, and then shall pronounce him unclean. Anyone with such a defiling skin disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone 
they must live outside the camp. So this was a, a tribal travelling people, and an infectious skin disease was deadly and could spread very quickly. But it's also a picture that God used to show that they were spiritually unclean and that they had to be out of God's presence. They couldn't come anywhere near the temple. In fact, they couldn't come within the camp itself of the people. And so this man knew full well that he was contaminated. He had those torn clothes. He might have had a bell on him to warn people that he was coming. Or he would have shouted out whenever people were around, unclean, unclean. Because this kind of illness, like Ebola, only travels one way. A contaminated person touches healthy person to contaminated people. That was always the way it happened. So if anyone was then, if we read more in Leviticus, if anyone was to touch this contaminated person, they too would be considered contaminated, would have to go into confinement, they'd have to be outside the camp until it was sure that they hadn't caught the disease. It only travelled one way. And sin is like that. <coughs> and this leprosy, this skin disease, was a picture of sin. Sin contaminates, drags us down. It cuts us off from God. It breaks our relationships with other, others. And yet something amazing happens in verse 13. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Immediately, according to Old Testament law, Jesus would have become contaminated. But he says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Isn't that amazing? Healthy person touches contaminated person to healthy people. Extraordinary power. The wonder of the Lord Jesus. Jesus knows what the Old Testament requires. Verse 14, so Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Seems this man couldn't help but tell people. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Amazing, the touch of Jesus to the leper, and he heals him, he cleans him. And that's what we need to do, that's a picture of becoming a Christian, this leper, coming to Jesus, admitting our sin, admitting we need him, and he can forgive us. Well, let's keep going to the next episode. Point three, I need to realise that my biggest problem is my sin and Jesus has authority to forgive it. I need to realise that my biggest problem is my sin and Jesus has authority to forgive it. As we come into this episode, we come to verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, notice again the emphasis on teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Jesus is teaching. And while he's doing that, we're introduced to some new people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, it's striking. These Pharisees were the Bible teachers of the day. The closest equivalent we have in today's society is conservative evangelicals. 
with churches like this, where we prioritise Bible teaching. They wanted to take people back to God's word and to encourage them to put it into practice. They weren't the religious elites like the bishops of the Church of England. No, they were a, a particular group who saw the importance of going back to God's words. And yet they got something very, very wrong. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. They come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralysed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Amazing scene, isn't it? (coughs) This man being carried by his friends who are absolutely desperate to get him healed. And no wonder he's been paralysed, perhaps for life, we don't know. He would have been forced to beg, been utterly dependent on others. And he's lowered down right in front of Jesus. They've done it. They've got him there. And then verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. You can just imagine the the jitters in the crowd, the kind of whispering going on. What on earth is he doing? I cannot see why this guy's come. I mean, I, I know he likes forgiving sins. He's talking about that all the time. But if there's one thing that's pretty obvious that this guy needs, Jesus, psst, Jesus, psst, legs, his legs. Can't you see his legs? That's what people want. You can imagine it, can't you? And yet, it's not only shocking because he seems to have missed the point of what the guy's friends want. It's shocking because of verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Whereas the crowds perhaps were thinking, Why doesn't Jesus just get on and heal the guy? The guy looking up at Jesus is thinking, Can't you see my legs are my biggest problem? Pharisees realise that Jesus has just, said, has just said something outrageous. He's effectively claiming to be God. Because only God can forgive sins, because a sin is an offence against God. And then, verse 22, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. They did see something remarkable. But it's very striking what Jesus said is the more remarkable thing. Do you see his question? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because you can't prove it. 
it's much harder to say get up and walk because then you have to prove it. But it's much easier for Jesus to do the get up and walk and much harder for him to do your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus does something much easier. He raises the guy to his feet to prove that he can do something much harder. The forgiveness of sins. The broken relationship between this man and God. You see, as Jesus looked at him, he could see that he thought his biggest problem was his paralysis, the fact that he couldn't walk. But Jesus knew what his biggest problem was. And Jesus knows what your biggest problem is, what my biggest problem is. I wonder what you're feeling like at the moment. What you feel is your biggest problem. What do you feel you need most? What would you, what's in front of you is sort of too big on the horizon? What are you desperate that would get out the way? Perhaps you're struggling to pay the mortgage or the rent. Perhaps you're desperate for a relationship. Perhaps you're feeling the lack of a relationship. Or maybe you have a relationship that is broken and you're desperate for it to be healed. Maybe your job is what is your biggest problem at the moment. Problems at work or just not enjoying it. Or maybe your lack of a job is your biggest problem. Maybe your illness or the illness of a loved one. And yet Jesus says, whatever it is that's most overwhelming in your life, he looks at you and he knows that your sin is your biggest problem. And he says those words of extraordinary reassurance if we will come to him and trust in him. Your sins are forgiven. I wonder if we feel that need. Or does Christianity, does Jesus offer a solution to a problem that we don't really believe in? See, if we don't see our sin as our biggest problem, then we will miss the whole point of Jesus' mission, of why he came. Whatever we're going through, whatever struggles we face, actually Jesus wants us to see through those struggles that it's our sin that is the biggest problem. I praise God that my dad went through cancer <coughs> for 12 years because in the last year or two of his life, through the cancer, he was asking questions and thinking to the future and knowing that he was going to face God and face eternity. And it was through that that he read a gospel and put his trust confidently in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of a famous woman called um, Joni Erickson Tarder. You may have heard of her. She's completely and utterly paralysed. All she can do is just move one little finger to steer herself um, on her electric chair around the room. And yet she says, only God is capable of telling us what our rights and our needs are. You have to surrender that right to him. And she's a great picture of joy in her trials. Only God is capable of telling us what our rights and our needs are. What do you feel is your right at the moment? What does God owe you? 
What have you got planned out for your life that he should give you? We need to surrender that to him and let him deal with our biggest problem, our sin, and mend our broken relationship. So we come to the best news in the passage, the last bit. Point four, Jesus came to include the excluded. The question is, do I know I need him? Jesus came to include the excluded. So the question is, do I know I need him? Verse 27 on your passages on the inside. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Well, here we get another shock. You see, what we may not be able to gauge as we read the word tax collector is that Levi wouldn't have just been unpopular because he worked for the Inland Revenue, because he had to collect people's taxes and no one liked paying taxes. No, Levi was pretty much the worst possible person in society. No one liked Levi because no one liked tax collectors. Tax collectors at the time, I suppose, are the equivalent of a loan shark, that is, someone who, who in, this, in this culture would lend people money at a ridiculous rate of interest and then use horrible tactics to try and get it back off them. And so if they were doing that on a local estate, everyone would be petrified of them and would hate them. And also at the same time a traitor, because they were working for the enemy occupiers, for the Romans who were there controlling the Israelite forces. He would have been an absolutely horrible man who everyone knew was waiting to see who he could take advantage of next. Exploiting the poor, taking money that they didn't have off them, lining his own pockets. And yet, Jesus comes to Levi and welcomes him. And Jesus turns his life around. It's absolutely amazing, verse 29, isn't it? Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. It's an extraordinary proof. It's it's a wonderful proof of his conversion, that he's been rescued. One of the clear signs that you know that you need Jesus is if you invite others to be rescued too. I heard this week a quote saying this, a true convert will not want to go to heaven alone. A true convert will not want to go to heaven alone. If we realise that even though we're the lowest of the low, we deserve nothing from Jesus, but he has forgiven us, then we'll want to tell as many people as we can about that. (coughs) Yet we come back to the Pharisees. The story continues. The plot deepens. Verse 30. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now it's important to step back into first century society and see the importance of and significance of a meal. For Jesus to go to a meal at someone's house was a sign of a shared life. Meals with people were very significant. They were a sign of intimacy and fellowship, of, um, of a kind of family relationship almost, of a unity. And so the Pharisees, who were trying to make sure they applied the rules, had 
clear rules about who you could and couldn't eat with. Because of that issue of contagion. You know, like the Ebola person. If you bring them into a room full of healthy people, then everyone gets Ebola. If you bring a sinner into a room full of righteous people, then everyone's dragged down, everyone's contaminated. And yet Jesus' answer to them is wonderful. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think we can often miss the joke within this very, very serious point. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Just imagine the scene. Let's say I had a, a caused a serious car crash and ran into someone and I saw that they were desperately ill. I knew there was a hospital around the corner, so it was quicker to take them there myself than to call the ambulance. So I rushed them into A&E for immediate treatment and the doctors are putting them on the stretcher. But then one doctor comes up to me and he says, Oh, sir, I must say what an absolute privilege it is to have such a fine picture of health like you standing in front of me here in this hospital. These ill and injured people in front of me, they're not the reason that I joined the profession. No, you know, sir, if you have the time, ignoring the sick person there and talking to me, I, I just wonder if you wouldn't mind me taking an hour or so just to examine you and appreciate just the splendour of your athletic physique. <laughs> well, well I, I wouldn't be that surprised if you wanted to admire my athletic physique. <laughs> But it would be totally ridiculous, wouldn't it? Doctors don't go out looking for healthy people. And so in the midst of a serious point, Jesus is just showing them just how ridiculous it is. Jesus didn't come to congratulate us on how good we are. He came to rescue us, verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And yet when I think about it, why, why do I come to church? Is there an element of me coming to just be reassured that I'm a, a good person, that I'm on the right track, to feel a little bit better about myself, for people to boost me up and say, no, you're not that bad, really? Or do I come to experience the rescuing power of God? Verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, those in right relationship with God but sinners to repentance. And repentance in the Christian life is ongoing. Again and again we need to come back to God and recognise our sin. As we saw before, the closer you get to Jesus, like Simon Peter, the more sinful you realise you are. And the more we need to come to him admitting that we failed. And then rejoicing like Levi in the fact that he forgives us, that he welcomes us home. And so these Pharisees, they've got it all the wrong way around. And actually these people who think that they are the ultimate insiders, the Pharisees, become the outsiders. They don't want the, the nasty people, the unconverted, the people that no one likes. And in doing so, they fail to bring themselves in line with God's priorities. These Pharisees, they haven't gone into the world 
to get alongside the, the non-believer. Instead, they've built up a religion which creates barriers between themselves and the world. They've tried to make themselves look like they're sorted, look like they're obedient to God's word, but actually all they've done is go completely against his good news principles. <coughs> yes, they would give and they would pray, and if they were around today, they would attend many church activities. We can imagine them, two Pharisees chatting together at, at the synagogue, can't we? As one says to, to the other, you know, before I was a Pharisee, I used to have lots of um, non-Pharisee friends. Uh, but now I've been a Pharisee for a while, I found it more and more difficult to mix with those non-Pharisees. Because you know what, they're, they're so inferior, they're so godless, they're so impure, and, and they just they don't understand the wonder of God's word. At first I, I tried to start up conversations with God about them, uh, with, about God with them, uh, but they mocked me for it. And so frankly now, I'd just, I just rather be with my Pharisee friends. So I, I go on holiday with my Pharisee friends. I spend my evenings with my Pharisee friends, and my weekends too, and my diary is so filled up with my Pharisee friends that I don't really have time for the non-Pharisees. But Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. So as we plan our diaries, as we think about how we spend our time, as we think about what our priorities are, we need to recognise first and foremost that we are sinners in need of a saviour. And that if we understand the good news that Jesus can heal, that rather than us contaminating him, he can heal us because he lived the life that we failed to live, because he died the death that we deserve to die, because he rose again to give us new life. Because of that, we can live wholeheartedly for him. Then as we plan our diaries, as we make our priorities, we need to think, are we reaching out? Are we going out to those who we wouldn't normally mix with? And that will sometimes take a huge amount of effort. It's not just about trying to meet up with people we naturally see, although we need to be doing that. And this example of a meal is so crucial, isn't it? Levi, Jesus coming into Levi's house and enjoying this great banquet, this great party, with his disciples there as well. We, we need to be doing that kind of thing. Getting people round the table. I started reading, reading a book by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus, where he goes through Luke's Gospel and talks about the significance of, of Jesus eating with people or talking about being brought into relationship with God as, as like being brought into a meal around the table. And we need to, to bring people in and to share our lives with them. And so in your diary, are you demonstrating your compassion, your love for the unbelievers you meet? Not just in the office, but outside the office, not just in your everyday life, but actually proactively inviting them and other Christians spending time with them to try and share the gospel with them. Jesus shows us in this passage that his priority is the outsider, the excluded. And the question as we pose is, is that our priority too?
because Jesus came to rescue sinners. And he wants rescued sinners like Simon Peter to join his mission too. And to do so with joy. Let me close in prayer and then we'll have a bit of time to, to discuss and ponder this a bit further. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you came to rescue us, that you came to seek us out. Thank you that you went to Levi, who assumed that he was completely excluded. He'd given up on trying to even look like he was following God and was a total traitor. And yet you drew him in. Please help us to see that actually we're just like him. We're just like the leper. That we deserve to be excluded. And yet we need you to heal us. Please equip us to take this wonderful message to those who don't know you yet. In your precious name.